Welcome into the shed, everyone. Jonathan here, one of your co-hosts. Eva is still in Italy. I assume she's having a great time. Uh, but today I have another special guest. My guest today is Nat West, former owner of Reverend Nat's Hard Cider, a company he led for 12 years and recently, uh, just recently shut down. And for the past two months, he's been a TriMet bus driver. Nat is also the only candidate out of about 50 or so, I think, right now that are running for office uh, in Portland next year who lists their Strava account on their official campaign website. Yes. <laughs> Nat, <laughs> thanks for coming in. It's great to have you here. I actually had the idea of doing the Strava a long time ago. And when I first thought about running for running for council, I thought, oh, yeah. Social media. I got to put uh, Strava in there. I'll be the only one. <laughs> are, are, you gonna, are you seeing like random people pop up? Like I saw following one. you? I saw one. <laughs> You're right like, away. why is that person following me? I mean, I'm, I'm so, I don't, I don't pay for Strava. I'm not really that into Strava. I love doing it for literally the sort of social fun aspect of it. Like I love seeing what my other friends are doing um, and, you know, getting ideas for rides to do based on what they're doing. So mm. that's my purpose with Strava. And if I can inspire anybody to do uh, a ride that I do because they looked on my Strava, then that's a total win. Okay, since we're on the topic of riding already, you rolled up into the, the in the shed, the backyard here on this big old Rad Power. Tell me about the bike you came in on. Yeah, Rad Wagon 4. It's in safety black. Um, yeah, so it's it's the long tail. Uh, it's my second long tail, first e-bike. Uh, and I bought it, I guess, a couple years ago. Um, I spent my whole life without a, a, a vehicle. My, my wife and I have shared a vehicle for our entire adult lives until I started Reverend Nats. And I bought a, a delivery truck basically right away. And then that was my daily driver. And then I had a couple other daily drivers over the last bunch of years at Rev Nats. And I never found it possible to not have a car at, at, at Rev Nats. I was just constantly doing errands, um, moving things. It wasn't so much about moving heavy cases, but like so many times I, I had to drop up a, a package at, at FedEx on the way home, or I had to go to a meeting somewhere else. And it was just, you know, the distances were oftentimes challenging to do, uh, you know, on an analog bike, you know, the, the weather, uh, riding in the summertime makes you sweaty. And I didn't want to show up to a meeting with Safeway covered in sweat. Right. Yeah. So th these are all known things in the e-bike e world, but you know, so a couple of years ago, it became practical for me to try to do it, um, with a with an e bike cargo bike e cargo bike yeah and it totally worked and so now I'm uh you know primarily back to um, being a bike we do have, we do share a car again my wife and I so yeah not car free you, you said known things and it just occurred to me my my lack of prof professional introduction here I don't think I even mentioned that you are running for Portland City Council in District Two yeah <laughs> north and northeast which is where we're sitting now you're a Woodlawn resident right yeah long time. And a friend of Stephen Green, who was just here last week. Also a Woodlawn resident. Also a neighbor. Friend yeah. of you, too. Jonathan. That's right. Okay. We have, I must disclose, we have known each other for some years. And I have given money to yep. Bike Portland. Uh, long ago, I did an ad with, my, with one of my cider brands. And then recently, we, more recently, we tried a thing for the home deliveries during the pandemic. Yeah. A little advertising yeah. thing. But and currently, I don't give you any money. I haven't no. given you any money in a while. No, not until after the interview. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, for, for the uninitiated... I don't want to spend too much time, you know, tooting the horn of Reverend Nat's hard cider, but it was a sort of a phenomenon institution here in Portland. Mm -hmm. And I should say also way beyond Portland. Mm -hmm. Yep. You built a pretty interesting brand. And it's funny because 
the cider was really experimental, mm-hmm. I should say, mm-hmm. but really good as well. Mm-hmm. I don't want people mm-hmm. to think it was, you know. Well, sometimes we made some bad ones. <laughs> That's part of being experimental, you. though, For right? Sure. Um, it's funny because I, I noticed on your campaign website, you're talking about how you want to do the boring work mm-hmm. and just the stuff we have to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you were saying on there, I'm not going to, you know, be cutting ribbons necessarily. I'm just going to do the boring. And it's just right. as funny to me because that's the complete opposite of RevNet's hard cider brand. It was yeah. like you had these sure totally different different vibe. But um, but the work that I did at RevNet's was work that small business people do in general is 99% boring. Ah, okay, good point. So I would, yeah. I would only see the really fun, interesting stuff. Totally. Behind the scenes. You just looked at Instagram. Yeah, that's right. true. Okay, I know all of you are not are not lucky enough to have, to have known Nat West personally, so I want to give you a chance, Nat, to uh, share with our listeners here what you want them to know about Nat West. Who are you? Maybe I should have prepared for that question. Yeah. Kind of obvious. Um, you know, I actually did think about this interview, and I thought it would honestly be kind of fun just to talk about bikes. Specifically, I think I can tell a little bit of a story about the bikes that I've had in my relationship to Portland through bikes. Um, I moved here in 2001 or something like that. Um, and as I mentioned before, I didn't have a car. I moved, moved from Virginia, grew up in Virginia. Okay. Um, got my first mountain bike when I was, um, 15. Didn't really deal, deal with cars very much as a younger person. Uh, took my, I was, I put street tires on my mountain bike and rode it all over the place. Uh, and back then mountain biking, you know, in the, this is, I'm old in the, uh, mid nineties, there was no Strava. There was no internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was hardly mountain bikes. You know, I, I had a, my first full, my first mountain bike was a full, for, full rigid, uh, Bianchi Osprey. Okay. And, you know, back then mountain biking, you know, in, in a place like central Virginia was just, uh, getting, was just going out and getting lost. That's what you did. That's what mountain biking was. Just find a trail somewhere on the edge of town and go and then. You come over, you come around a corner, you forward a creek and you're like, oh, and you come to the back of a subdivision. You're like, I think this is the, that subdivision. And then, <laughs> so I always, always loved uh, the adventure aspect of mountain biking. Anyway, so uh, moved to Olympia, Washington out of um, high school. My wife went to uh, Evergreen, Evergreen State College there. And m- me on my, at that time, it was a stump jumper. I had upgraded to a, a specialized stump jumper hardtail. Still with the street tires on and um, took that bike to San Diego. My wife went to grad school there and uh, girlfriend, wife, all the same person. Um, got a second stump jumper there, hardtail. First one got stolen. And then uh, and we moved to Portland in like, let's call it 2002. I should probably know that but number yeah. better <laughs> since I'm running for council. And then w- when I came here, I, I started working, living on the east side and working in uh, the Pearl. I was doing IT, computer software stuff. And I commuted every day back and forth through lads on uh, my mountain bike. And then my, <laughs> my business partner was a cyclocross guy. And he's like, you can't do that. You need an actual bike. So I uh, went on Craigslist and bought like a pretty sure it was a Fuji. It was blue. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't have that for very long because it was too big for me. The frame was too big. So as a birthday present, uh, my at the time business partner, he bought me a, um, a Surly Crosscheck frame. And I swapped over all the parts uh, on the Fuji to the Crosscheck. And I spent all, all you know, years and years on that Crosscheck um, working IT downtown, living on the east side, uh, you know, doing critical mass rides, mm. like what 
Let's go way back on that one. Um, doing critical mass. Okay, yeah. Is that ringing yeah. a bell for some listeners? Maybe. Well, you did. You did. You probably did critical mass, and that 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 makes me think maybe that's where you get some of your passion around policing issues because in oh, those yeah. years, critical mass was very heavy yeah. with police presence. And sometimes I learned and, how to cork. Yeah. 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 The, the cops really cracked down on it for a few years there and it got actually pretty ugly, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, so yeah, with that, with that, that's certainly, I still ride it. I'm just, and, you know, it's always one of the, you, when you have a cross check, you never, yeah, right. Or you, okay. Well, if you, if you know, you know, uh, I think you should do a roundup of candidates who've ever owned a cross check. <laughs> right. It's kind of because it's like the, the ubiquitous bike. The, ar- the archetype of yeah. Portland bikes. Um so yeah, yeah, getting involved in, in the community more. Um one one ride that I remember I did on that uh cross check with my kid, I think my kid was probably four at the time, and we had one of those plastic bucket seat things that you put over the rear rack, you okay. know, mm-hmm. the cl- since things that existed since the eighties. And we did a, um, a pedal palooza ride called uh, park safari mm. where we would go from park to park to park. It was a family kid, kid thing. Um, and playground, more like actually playground to playground. And the rules were you, as many playgrounds as we could fit in in a single day. And a, a playground visit included either a swing or a slide and a snack at every park. Perfect. And um, I had a couple people one year, and then the next year I did. Nobody oh, you led up. the ride? I led the ride, yeah. Good, okay. Yeah. A couple people showed up the first year, and then the second year, nobody else showed up. And I was like, yeah, this is probably a little bit too <laughs> obscure. for." It was like a high. It, not... We did like 20 parks in a day. It was That's like funny. hardcore pedaling. Yeah. That's like a essential Portland experience to not just only lead a pedal palooza ride, get nobody to show to up on no a pedal. Show up. Exactly, I, I'll commiserate yeah. on my bike skateball ride where we were gonna play basketball on our bikes and visit street. Yeah, hoops. great but idea you for you. Feel bad because, like mine, I think it was a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> it's just that pedal palooza is so competitive. Yeah, there could have been fifteen other rides. Totally, and at I didn't same time. I, I didn't day. provide so, donuts along there, the way. There's a lot of things. It's, it's, you got to bring your eight. I mean, you're yeah. going up against some. Oh, I know. Serious I know. ride uh, leaders there. So yeah. So always participating in in uh, pedal palooza. Yeah, and then you know my kid grew up and they got too big for the bucket on the back. So I think the next thing we did we added a um, one of those trailer bikes that, that attaches to the seat post. Picked yeah. it up at Community Cycling Center, and they were, you know, flopping around on the back of that thing for, uh, you know, a few years. Um, I was doing IT, um, did a lot of web development at the time, so kind of startup-ish community. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, and then started uh, Reverend Nats in 2011. Uh, started it in my basement and uh, expanded into my garage. Yeah. And actually, pr- prior to that, I was I was collecting apples by bike with my kid. Uh, we had we, up, we had, at that point we had upgraded to a uh, extra cycle mountain bike with an extra cycle bolted on the back. Collecting apples. Collecting apples. I went on a cider ride with you, pedal palooza ride. I think last year, or the yep. year before, just last year, I think last year. Yeah. So this just summer, it was amazing. So we're riding along in northeast somewhere. And yep. there's this little grove of trees, which I'd never known was there. Mm-hmm. It's like a secret little mm-hmm. car-free street kind of byway yep. there. Yep. And there's a grove of trees, and apparently it's some kind of special cider orchard or something. Yeah, just south of the Sabin Water Tower. It's okay. called the Sabin Community Orchard. Sabin Community Orchard, I think, yeah. Neat. Maybe there's like 20 trees there. So you yeah. would actually, you're actually collecting apples in the neighborhood at one I point? I collect apples all over the city of Portland. Yeah. Uh, Portland Children's Arboretum up um, north end of town near the slough. Yeah. Um, went out to Sovie Island by bike. Uh, the Bybee Howell Park out there has a bunch of trees. 
Um, there's some apples that we used to collect. My kid and I used to collect in North Portland. Not there anymore. It's uh, d- housing now. Uh, yeah, so we, we actually, wow. <laughs> uh, you know, speaking of building community, I made a flyer. And this is before the, the business started, but when I was making cider at home, I made a flyer and said, can we have your apples? And it was a picture of my kid and me and a little description about how we would take care of the people's backyard apple trees in exchange for collecting the fruit. No way. And we like rode our bikes all around the, um, the whole Northeast Portland, North Northeast. And, and every time we saw uh, an apple tree, we could spot them from a distance, whether they had apples on them or not. We'd leave a flyer. And I got like two people to reply saying, yeah, come get the apples. <laughs> um, but that was really, you know, just stuff that you, you did back in the early 2000s in Portland. Well, that's stuff you did. Nat. I <laughs> okay. mean, I, you, got, you got your name Reverend Nat. Well, partly because you're an ordained through the that yeah. thing online that you yep. you know that you can you yep. want to do someone's wedding. I think people can understand that. But the the more interesting part of that story that I liked was you're just so evangelistic around apples and cider and always yeah. telling people about them. And it's like, why? What what about apples really mm. got you so excited and remains really into them? I've never met anybody with that passion of, of apples and turning them into cider. Well, I think you only kind of got to know me when I was a cider guy, but I really have that passion for a lot of things. Mm. Uh, sometimes I joke that I'm a mountain biker who also has a cider company. I see. Um, and, you know, here we are talking about city council. You just get into things. The and stoke, that's it. Is, stoke is very high for okay. the city of Portland right now for me. All right. Well, why, why is this, why, why, as you say that the stoke is so high for the city of Portland right now, I think uh, I think more people are feeling that way in the recent months, maybe mm-hmm. half a year or so, but we've been yeah. through some difficult times in yeah. the last several years. Um, why are you so positive about Portland right now? I think the more that I learn about Portland, the more excited I am for Portland and, and f- potentially for opportunities for improvement, but also opportunities for me to engage more mm. with the city. Um, you know, I definitely took a break, I think, from c- c- my civic duties when I was running Reverend Nats. Uh, well, sort of. Yeah, in, in some ways. <laughs> you know, I stopped going to neighborhood association meetings and, you know, testifying in front of council. But um, I started uh, using the platform that customers gave me, helped me make, by giving away a ton of cider and giving away a lot of gift cards for fundraisers supporting grassroots organizations. And so, yeah, the more I learn about, the more people I meet and the more I learn about all the cool things that are happening in this city, the more I'm like, this is the coolest place in the world. And I have um, some resources and some assets and some, um, a network that I can uh, tap into in, in order to really get some things done that I think may be a bit more of a challenge for some other people to get done. You mentioned your deliveries, mm-hmm. which folks need to know. Uh, during the pandemic, he had a very successful cider company, shipping cans all over the place and in stores and all that kind of thing. But then he opened up delivery because you also yep. have a tap room, which yep. we haven't mentioned, right? So you Which started, went away in the beginning of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. right, right. And so, yeah. But then you started doing home delivery. That's right. And so I think what's important for folks to realize for, about that, one of the things that I think is an interesting takeaway is that you were supporting groups that were involved with like mutual aid for yep. the, for the black lives matter protests and stuff during that whole right. really just, you know, fraught era of like yeah. emotion and, and summer of 2020. Yeah. Summer of 2020. And there was, there was Rev Nats, this cider company. And I'd get an email cause I'm on your list, you know, saying 
you know, this, this month or whatever, this week, cider deliveries, we're going to give a portion of the proceeds every time you make an order to whatever group that's yeah. supporting yep. the protests and stuff like that. Yep. And I was like, well, that's, you don't see that every day, especially with such a charged issue. There were definitely yeah. people on all sides of that. Yep. And here you were taking your business and squarely putting your support behind groups that were supporting the protest. You also went down yep. there and having your daughter and yep. you're getting hit with some yep. munitions at one point. Yep. And, yep. And we got blasted. So, yeah. So, but that wasn't even a, a question for you. Is that just an extension of your civic engagement doing that kind of thing with your company? Yeah. Um, it's a good, it's a good question. I don't, something kind of, kind of flipped in me a little bit in 2020. Uh, well, actually at my kid getting injured was really the, the, uh, was a, was a big, a big part of it, but yeah, you know, I think injured out, of, injured out of protest, injured out of protest. Yeah. Um, pretty severely injured. Um, we, um, I, I wasn't a very particularly politically minded person, um, for my whole life. You know, I supported a lot of progressive causes. I voted blue all along the way and gave 20 bucks to Obama kind of thing, but not really paying attention to a lot of, uh, um, a lot more beyond that, but, uh, a couple things kind of raised my ire. There was a, a friend of mine, Adam Milne, he owns and, and runs, um, Old Town Brewing, uh, on MLK and they've got a, um, in Old Town as well. Uh, he recently, uh, had the opportunity to purchase a baby doll pizza. So he's got a little pizza thing going on in Portland. Um, he, he was getting screwed over by the city of Portland on a trademark issue mm. in like 2017. For Old Town? Old Town, yeah. Because oh, it's located in Old Town. Yeah, and he was using the leaping stag motif, you oh, know, the, the know stag okay. uh, that we have for Old Town. And the city of Portland was trying to sell it, sell the rights to it to Anheuser-Busch. Hmm. And he already had what's called an incontestable trademark with the USPTO. So it was like done deal. It was his. Um, but the city of Portland was like kind of going around his back. And the last thing that you want to do as a politician in the city of Portland is uh, get beer drinkers upset. Like, that's like, I mean, totally nonpartisan, yeah. like, issue. Uh, so I got pissed off, and I thought, this is, you know, you, when you read the facts of the situation, you're like, this cannot stand. This is a mistake. Um, so I uh, did sort of the first real kind of political thing in my life. I organized a bunch of people, and we held rallies, and we you know, got the media to show up and, and, and make this issue known and it worked the city of portland backed down and they said hey we're gonna oops sorry um and uh th that ability to see something that was so clearly incorrect and then to know that i could uh put a ton of effort into and stick my neck out and i would get something out of it um that really opened me up to more opportunities to do that so yeah when 2020 rolls around stuck my neck out, saw something that was so clearly incorrect. Um, and, you know, did we solve systemic racism in America? No. But did we make, um, did, we, did we raise the issue? You know, what were our goals in 2020? Our, 20, our goals in 2020 weren't ab ab abolishing the police department. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to raise the issue and so we can continue to have conversations about this and ultimately see solutions down the line. So, um, yeah, that's just been really motivating to me to know that, uh, that I don't, I'm not scared of fights at all. <laughs> I'm not scared of sticking my white skin in a place where it's much better to have a white guy saying these things than it is to have a black guy saying these things. Um, 
really comfortable with that. Um, and I like it. I, I welcome those opportunities to, to really make change and to, you know, to listen to the people around me and amplify their voices. And on your website, you talk about needing to not necessarily govern by idealism. You said you would lead with pragmatism, not necessarily mm-hmm. idealism. Mm-hmm. I find that much different than what you just said in terms of, you know, sticking your neck out. So yep. I'm curious how you're going to balance your impulse toward activism with building relationships on council and, and getting things done, you know, for everybody in your district. Yeah, I think my 12 years as a small business owner, as well as the the IT company that I owned before that, so I'm on 20 five years almost as a small business owner. Um, Small business people have to always create vision. They have to have vision. They have to uh, explain their vision to the employees, to their customers, to other business partners. The vision needs to be clear and needs to be uh, achievable, uh, but it also needs to be bold. Otherwise people are going to be like, why would I engage with this? If it's just, if the goal is just, uh, if the vision is, get a paycheck and go home by five every day. That's not exciting. It's not motivating. So I think I've really learned that you have to simultaneously be uh, full of big ideas and uh, motivating people. Um, But then once you're, you know, done with the rally, you go uh, file payroll taxes and empty the trash. And, um, you know, like I said, 99% of small business is boring stuff. Uh, I don't think that they are at odds at all. Creating a vision is critical. Um, but right now I think the city of Portland suffers from a lack of both vision and execution. And I think we, I think we can do both. And, you know, honestly, I think there are a, a bunch of really great candidates who are running who are full of vision. Um, and I don't see a lot of candidates who are full of execution. So, you know, trying to fit into the new council, I think my role can be to support a lot of vision, um, but I think my role is really going to be to support execution more so. I think voters hear about, I'll support small business a lot. Mm. Like it's a pretty common thing mm-hmm. in campaigns it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, to say, you know, I'll, I'll be the champion of small business. Of course, you've made it your centerpiece with a lot of actual experience, yeah. in it, you know, uh, not just uh, patronizing them, but actually building one and being the, the owner of one. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I just was, I was hoping that you could be a little more specific about what that looks like in terms of policy. Um, you've called for, like, for instance, a small business council, which is something other cities have. Mm-hmm. What, what would that do? Like, what would be the material impact of having you on council and, and something related to like small business policy that you would push that would impact the city? Yeah. Well, I appreciate the question because yeah, it is kind of what I'm known for. Um, you know, I got a great piece of advice early on in this campaign, play the cards you were dealt and here I am small business guy. So I'm just going to lean into it. Um, you know, small business, uh, local business is um, really unusual in Portland. We do things you know, we don't have big box stores in Center City. Um, yeah, I remember, uh, was it Home Depot tried to move in on the uh, Morrison Bridgehead or something like that? You know, you, you can't open a big box store in Center City here in Portland. Uh, and that's unique. It's, it's different that way. Um, additionally, I think that I, in a lot of ways, the things that people remember and people love about Portland are relationships with 
um, local businesses, with small businesses. You know, you'll remember um, the first time you went on a date and what restaurant you went to. And, you know, you'll remember, um, you know, that, that's that boutique that has the kind of pens that you like. And, you know, maybe we don't necessarily always have disposable income to buy a special pen, but it is part of why we love Portland is that access to all these incredible small producers. And, uh, the, the crazy part about it is that if you ask, um, any small business owner, whether the city of Portland government is really helpful to small business, nobody's going to say yes. Mm. And uh, so you mentioned the office of small business, you know, LA has one, San Francisco has one, Seattle has one, Vegas has one. We don't have an office of small business. What we have is five counselors who are largely beholden to the Portland Business Association. Uh, PBA is not the Portland Business Association. It's the Portland Large Business Association. Mm. The, they do not let you in if they don't want you in. Um, un- unlike Stephen Green's thing, we talked, you had a Stephen Green on your, as a guest recently or a co-host recently, and he's in charge of Business for a Better Portland, BBPDX, which is actual, anybody can join that. If you're a small business, you, you're welcome to join. Uh, you know, so the PBA is really focused on large business. And unfortunately, we've had a system of policies, a set of policies and a sort of a way that we do business in the city that has always favored large business because the commission form of government means you can buy yourself a commissioner. Um, and the new form of government makes it much more challenging to buy a commissioner. So it, a whole lot of things are coming together right now that really lead us towards uh, a revitalization of small businesses in the city. So yeah, obviously following up with potential, speaking of policies, the, the primary thing that I would want to create within the office of small business is uh, a navigator or a liaison service. So when you're a small business, if you have a question about anything in the city, you don't try to figure out who to ask. You just ask your, your business, your office of small business liaison, and they'll go in there and do the dirty work and figure it out for you. Mm. Whether it's uh, I want to close my street. I've never done that before for, for a party. Um, or there's a bus stop that's right in front of my business. And, you know, when the uh, air compressor goes off, it blasts my ears. Can you move it 10 feet? You know, how, how would a small business person figure out how to do that? Well, number one, yeah. it's not necessarily important. It's TriMet. But a liaison should be able to help with all these topics. Um, and we're not talking about preferential treatment. We're talking about common sense changes that we can do that everybody would be in favor of. Yeah. That we just don't. And the worst people in the world to try to get um, new things done a lot of ways is small business people because we're just trying to keep the lights on today and tomorrow. And um, we always, uh, the list of to-dos is, is never ending for small business people. So offering them a little bit of help, I think, is good for them. But ultimately, it's good for customers of small businesses, which is everybody in the city. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think a lot of listeners can relate to how nice it would be to have a one-stop shop to call things into, yeah. to get things done. I think totally. that speaks not just to small business needs, but pretty much almost yeah. any issue in the city. And without finger pointing, you know, you know somebody's like, yeah. oh, uh, you know, homelessness, this, homelessness, that. And I heard Mingus Maps say, oh, it's not my problem. I'm like, bro, yeah, it, it's a little more Multnomah County on that point, but you can't say not my problem. Like it's, it's no finger pointing allowed, you know, when I'm involved in this thing. Yeah. To, to bring it back to transportation a little bit. Yeah. I want to make sure I got to hear from you about your job as a TriMet bus driver. I oh, know yeah. you're still 
You're part time. You're just getting your love it. Do they? What are they, is there a jargon? Is it not just getting feet wet? Is it? I don't know. Is there any trimester well, jargon I am for newbies? In, I am in probation. In probation. So okay. for six months means you have to you know walk on eggshells basically. So tell me something about being a trimet bus driver that you think will you know inform how you see transportation issues, street safety, mm. that sort of thing. Oh, love this one. Uh, so I'm a super duper multimodal guy. Um, yeah, e-bike, uh, I, right now I have a split shift and, and most weeks I have a split shift at TriMet. So I drive in the AM and the PM for the AM commute and the PM commute. And I break up that, the monotony of going to work twice by driving on one trip and biking on one trip. I drive in the AM cause I go there at five 30. There's no traffic. It takes me 16 minutes to get there. Um, takes me 25 minutes to get home at 9 a.m. But then I go back at like 4.30. Sorry, I go back at like 3. And uh, I ride my bike because it takes me 22 minutes there or back, no matter what the traffic is. You know, this is the greatest thing about bikes is there's no such thing as traffic, right? Um, so I, I drive uh, quite a lot. I ride my uh, e-bike quite a lot. I ride my old Surly Crosscheck quite a lot. Um, I drive a bus. Um, I have bought heavy trucking freight hundreds of thousands of dollars over the last 10, 12 years at Reverend Nats. Trucking is really, really important to me. And I think sometimes cycling advocates get a little, they say things that, are, that they, they know are not true because we need, we need freight, we need trucks. It was cool hearing Keith Wilson on your show. He's like deeply involved in trucks. And he take his, takes his responsibility as a truck person very seriously. Like I'm driving an 8,000 pound you know, murder machine. His folks are driving 25,000 pound murder machines, 50,000 pound murder machines. So it's really important, I think, to take, to look at all modes critically, not necessarily with one mode uh, as, as a preference. Unfortunately, autos have been preferential forever. Um, so there's a lot of catching up for the other modes to have to do. One thing I don't do a lot of is, is, being a pedestrian. I'll be honest about that. Mm. You know, I walk here and there, but I'm not a, the biggest pedestrian person. So okay. I think one thing that I'm thinking about when it comes to transportation is making sure that the, that when we're trying to figure out whether we're going to paint a bike lane on a, a street, um, we're looking at it, not necessarily from, you know, is Nat going to enjoy that bike lane? Is Jonathan going to enjoy that bike lane? Cause I'll ride anywhere. Or are your Political donors going to enjoy that bike lane oh, or yeah. $350 <laughs> a piece. So there's not a lot of influence there. Um, I think there's, a, there's, there's, we as cycling advocates need to kind of separate, you know, what we're going to, what we think cycling infrastructure should be from what that missing, what 22% that we want to get. We're supposed to hit 25% by whatever. That's a hell of a lot of people. How, what do they need? Not necessarily what, what we need to, increase our like i don't need to increase my number of bike trips that's not really in the ticket mm. for me in the future so, so so what do you think some of those folks that might be interested in cycling but don't do it for a variety of concerns what do you think they need to finally get start doing I, I i don't know and i'm not i'm totally comfortable saying i don't know well i know that like i'll take my family for instance i'm obviously pretty cycle guy um i have a 19 year old and they do not cycle uh, uh, my wife, uh, does not cycle at all. She'll never do it. She doesn't like putting a helmet on her head. She doesn't like dealing with the U-lock 
she doesn't like the wind in her face. And mm-hmm. so that's a person who's never, it's not about bicycling infrastructure. It's not about protected pathways. It's not about mm. separated stuff. Jersey bears there. It's not going to happen for her. She's always going to be a car. She rides a bus a lot and she walks a lot more than I do. Um, so she's not, you know, car, she's not, doesn't have car brain as much as a lot of people do. do. Um, but I think it's really important to find people to not just always focus on uh, separated, uh, you know, protected, uh, protected bike lanes. Is that actually going to get my wife on a bike? No. Hmm. Um, but would more uh, red carpets, we call them in the, bu- in the bus world, the uh, red painted uh, transit, transit ways that you're not allowed to drive on unless you're a bus, more, would more of those get cars off the road for her? Yeah, absolutely hmm. they would. So I think you know, when you're thinking about like how to increase bike mode share, there's a ton of overlap between making the roads safer for freight drivers, making the roads safer for bus driver, bus, yeah, drivers, bus riders, making it faster for bus people, um, and then ultimately getting, you know, ca- uh, car trips down, cars off the road. It, it's, it's not a, you know, this thing about freight, how freight is always aligned with cars, that's so wrong. Freight should be aligned with bikes and transit because they can have the most, the, our goal is to get cars off the road, really. I, I just did a story recently about Transportation Commissioner Maps in a meeting with maintenance labor union members at the city of Portland uh, trying to get the fixing our streets gas tax, you know, getting support yep. for that. And he made some some comment about, you know, saying, quote, those bike lanes, you know, this this funding is not going to uh, fund, quote, those bike lanes that make everybody crazy. Yeah. Unfortunate thing to say. I think it was a bit of a probably a bit of projection on his part. Yep. He's already sort of walked back the comments uh, in a response to Bike Portland. Um, but I also notice on your website, you do talk about on there in, in a section on transportation about how you think Portland should quote, focus on deferred maintenance instead oh, yeah. of, instead of shiny new infrastructure, yep. Yep. which I think pretty much aligns with what the commissioner was trying to say. Mm-hmm. It's a popular line for politicians to create this dichotomy between maintenance and then shiny new infrastructure, Yeah, which for all intents and purposes in Portland, when you say shiny new infrastructure, the only new infrastructure we build is basically bike infrastructure or transit infrastructure. So right. I just wonder, you know, what do you have against shiny infrastructure? Why create that dichotomy mm-hmm. uh, when, especially when a lot of times the funding for that new infrastructure comes from outside right. the city anyway? Yeah. So we're not paying, we're paying at most half for any new infrastructure project if we can get federal dollars to kick in on this right. or state dollars. Like, like the city's about to to break ground in just a few months on the big Southwest 4th Avenue protected bike lane project, I mean, multi-million yep. dollars. Yep. I'm just wondering, you know, what what you mean when you say that on your website. Yeah. What I mean is when I'm driving a bus across Ross Island Bridge, I can't make out the center lane sometimes. The paint's gone. And when I'm heading north on I-5, there are the giant ODOT green sign exit signs that are half covered in graffiti. And... When I'm driving my bus on 39th, there are some potholes that are like friggin' massive. Now, I'm not shitting on the pothole guys because they actually do a lot of work. One cool thing about driving a bus is that you're driving the same road over and over again. You watch those potholes getting filled in. Potholes are, filling potholes are unfortunately just a band-aid on a larger problem with, that the road needs to get, you know, resurfaced overall. Um, yeah, it, it, it is not it. 
you, you do not need to do one or the other maintenance or shiny new infrastructure. Um, but you know, a friend of mine works for, um, Peabot and he, he, he thinks that infrastructure and maintenance shouldn't be against each other, shouldn't be vying, you know, like, like we're talking about here. And I do agree, but at the end of the day, there's dollars. Yeah. Federal dollars do kick in for infrastructure. They don't kick in for potholes and cleaning up signs and things like that. So we do have to make decisions about how we're going to spend our money. And I think right now the city of Portland has done a poor job working on basic infrastructure. And it's not just transportation infrastructure. It's like, when was the last time you used a restroom in a city park that was a, a brick building, hey, hey, right? I think restrooms are a great political, you should put that on your They're, platform. It's huge, right? Great crossover for cycling too, because people that ride a lot, like I have a thing in my head of like where good restrooms yeah, are. It's totally. a serious issue. Yeah, and if you're a car person, every uh, Home Depot has great restrooms. Yeah. But how are you going to ride your bike to a Home Depot? Like, yeah, you can it's go not happening. Yeah, that's funny. Right? So yeah. I think there is, uh, m- uh, maintenance overall is a big issue for me. Okay. I think the part of the problem with that is that politicians love red ribbons. They love saying, I brought you this new thing, new this, new that. And it's not re-electable to say, uh, I made sure the trash cans were emptied. And that's something that... That actually might be now in Portland. It might be. <laughs> we might be so far. That, yeah, but, you know, Ted yeah, Wheeler, like, got really excited uh, a few years ago, three years ago, about the new uh, art, artistic trash cans that mm-hmm. he dropped all over the city. And that's cool. There's still, like, a complete dearth of trash cans in the city. I don't see them overflowing with trash very often, but sometimes they are. So, you know, was there a plan in place to have that first tranche of trash cans that went out be the first tranche and not not the only tranche. Mm. And, and what, what are we doing about collection? Are we making sure that those are available? And, you know, when we, uh, during the early pandemic, when we dropped off uh, dumpsters at uh, homeless camps um, to try to, and, and, and porta-potties, and we found, uh, oh, actually homed people are just dumping into those dumpsters, and then they yanked them out. It's like, whoa, bro, you just messed up that. Like, mm. we're, we as citizens are saying we need more trash pickup services mm-hmm. and we'll make, we will make ourselves a cleaner city if we're given the option to do mm-hmm. so. So I think, I think overall, it's not really politically um, sexy to empty trash cans. Um, so I think my point about infrastructure versus maintenance is really about what are you going to try to get reelected on? And I guess I'm going to try to get reelected on emptying trash cans and not building things. Yeah. Not to say we're not going to build things. Well, not to say you don't have a vision for the kind of Portland that, that you want to see. Um, let's go right from emptying trash cans and, and keeping striping on the road nice and bright mm-hmm. to to that vision. Uh, you say on your website, there's groups like No More Freeways, which is a, a nonprofit that's mm-hmm. fighting the expansion of freeways in the Portland metro area. Uh, Albina Vision Trust, which is the group that's doing the work to reinvigorate and redevelop everything down by the motor center there and Portland neighbors welcome. So it's like a housing group that's pushing for uh, more, more dense housing. They are creating a vision for what the next decades of Portland's growth will look like. Yeah. And you also say that Portland needs to work now to set ourselves up for the future we want. Now I think uh, just in this interview, you've sort of fleshed out a little bit what you, what kind of Portland you'd like to mm-hmm. see. So I thought I would ask, what forces do you see that are working against the vision of those groups and the vision that you mm. want to see? Mm. Um, I think they're largely cultural 
So, you know, looking at uh, no more freeways, they're, they've been pretty active on the Rose Quarter widening I-5, mm-hmm. the cap, the ODOT cap, and that dovetails into Albina Vision as well. But we have an opportunity to build land there. So um, I think, you know, I drive through that interchange, that, that I-5 south and north through the Moda. Um, I have... I, I have had a crash there once mm. a bunch of years ago. I drive through that thing all the time. Every day, probably, for the last, like, 20 years, give or take every day, 50% of every day for the last 20 years. I do not think it needs to be widened. I've gone through it in um, the rush hours. I've sat in that thing for 20 minutes to go a mile. I don't think it should be widened. I think there's a, a, a um, agreement that we have to make as car drivers but sometimes we're going to sit on a road for 20 minutes because we've chosen to drive there. Um, it still may be uh, time efficient and you know, life efficient to do that 20-minute sit. Because if, you're, if you live in Vancouver and you work in Molala, you ain't taking public transit for that thing. That's a three-and-a-half-hour public one, transit one way. Better to sit for 20 minutes and that thing. There's, we're always going to need cars, right? But do we need to always prioritize cars like we have been doing forever? No, not at all. So I think there's just so much opportunity for us to, to, to think about what we're actually deciding with our dollars and with our building practices and think about what their ramifications are down the line, well after I'm way out of office and not you know, not just something that's going to get me reelected. So one of the things that I'm really excited about is new representation in the government, in the new council is, you know, I'm not trying to pretend that I know anything about downtown or Selwood or East of 82nd. I don't. Um, I know Northeast. I've lived here. I've had multiple business locations here. It's very, feel very comfortable when I, when I drive the route six, or they're at 75, I'm like, hell yeah, this is my area. Uh, you know, when I drive to 32, I'm like, I'm in a foreign land. Um, that's Clackamas for you guys yeah. who aren't transit savvy. Um, so I think the, the new council has the opportunity to bring, to, to go into the community more so than the current commission form of government does. Like, how do you be a commissioner now? You are supposed to be responsible to the, responsive to the entire city. You're supposed to be an expert in... Poor Mingus, he's supposed to be an expert in transportation. What does he, does he know anything about transportation? I mean, not shitting on the guy for that reason. I'll shit him over other reasons, but like that, how does he know anything about roads? I don't know that, that much about roads, right? So to be in charge of a bureau and to be responsive to the city, that's a recipe for disaster. The new council, we have a much smaller purview. We're more geographically based and there's three of us. So can I be the transportation guy for district two? I probably should be the transportation guy for district two should i be and i'll be the small business guy for district two should i be the um, addiction recovery person for district two nah i shouldn't be that person can i support you know my fellow counselor in d2 and in other districts who who has more knowledge in that absolutely teach me more how can i help you know that that project so i think there's going to be more opportunity for for these kinds of futures to come about because we're going to be out there making sure that we're engaging with our districts more so than we've ever been able to do so in, in the past. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay. Um, um, there's something I've been thinking about and you might've heard it in my last chat with Stephen green about how I see how Portlanders, uh, see the city. Mm-hmm. 
especially politicians and people that are active in the public square, and that is how they think about the protests when they look back at the protests, uh, especially now with hindsight, with I think how we've all become educated in different ways and evolved and become more aware of these issues in different ways. So I'm curious, when you think back at the protests, do you feel pride? Do you think that that was, you know, a great moment for the city? Or do you look back and think, gosh, we, we kind of got that wrong? Or, you know, I, I wish I wasn't so vocally in support of that. Or how do you look back now mm. at the protests? Yeah, it's a good, good question. Uh, so for those who aren't aware, I protested a lot in 2020. I was probably out there 40 nights out of 100 or whatever we hit. Um, yeah, my kid at the time was 16, and they got a ruptured eardrum from a federal grenade outside the federal building downtown, and I got shot numerous times by less lethal uh, munitions. Um, we did show up. I think it was really cool to see. Um, I think at one point we may have had more people downtown than the World Naked Bike Ride. So That's saying something. Saying a lot, man. Yeah. I remember one time I was downtown, and there were thousands outside in the park squares there. And uh, my wife was texting me from home and she said, turn around. I looked back and there was thousands walking up the street. They had done one of the bridge walks. Mm. There were a lot of people that showed up. And I think that's really important for us to, us as, as, as a community to know that when something is really wrong, um, we, we will show up. We will do things. Maybe they're not the right things. That's your second part of your question. Maybe they're not the most effective things. Maybe they're not the 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 ultimate goal. But we'll show up. Um, I think some of the protests we suffer from a lack of leadership. Um, I think that's in, endemic in in progressive circles. We it's a big tent, and nobody wants to police anybody about what they should be doing or saying. So certainly hurt us. You know, my, my, my role that I've, I found in, in the protests was, um, was not about vision and big, uh, you know, big changes. I showed up because I wanted to try to keep my kid safer than if I hadn't been there. And after they were injured and they stopped coming to, uh, protests, I continued to show up because every night that I went I was able to help somebody have a slightly better night than if I hadn't been there. Um, I remember one story we were, one night we were outside of the Portland Police Association headquarters on Lombard. In your district. In my district. And, um, you know, I, I, so to be clear, I've, I've never thrown anything at a cop. I've never even yelled at a cop. I've never spoken to a cop. Um, I've never chanted. My job at protests, and my job still at, at marches and protests is safety. Um, I cork, I keep my eyes out. Um, when this, this one evening there was a huge cop rush and, you know, I turned around and uh, made sure that everybody in my, you know, in my area was on their feet and running, not, you know, kneeling down or caught unawares. Um, I was the last person in the group. I got shot in the back twice. Um, by less lethal, huge bruises. Um, 
we came around the corner. I saw a scene of um, some medics taking care of somebody who didn't have their gas mask on. They got tear gassed in the face, and it was a bad sight. I and they had their backs to the action, the whole group. I thought this is not good. Um, so I stood there, uh, keeping an eye on the the mayhem, making sure that it wasn't going to come this way. When it started to come this way, I turned around. I said, "Hey, I didn't know these people." I said, hey, we got to go. They're coming this way right now. And the medics picked up this person and moved him around the corner to a safer spot. Um, and then, uh, you know, fast forward about 20 minutes, and I see that person that they were treating sitting alone on somebody's front yard, and they had their stuff strewn all about them, and their glasses were in their hand, and they were, a, they were a, an allergic mess. And I said, hey, can I walk you to your car? And they said, I'd love that. And uh, I walked them. A few blocks, we were a little disoriented about where we were, walked them to their car. I said, you know, is this close enough? Like, oh, my car's up there. I was like, yeah, like, yeah, is this close enough? I turned around and left, and I, I know they made it home safe because a couple of days later I saw them at another protest. And that, it's that, um, that's the kind of reason why I kept showing up because, you know, whether it's just helping a motorist who stumbled upon a scene that they shouldn't be in um, or... Uh, you know, helping somebody like that who, who was having suffering from the effects of tear gas. That's the the boring stuff. That isn't the, uh, you know, raising your fist. And, you know, I never carried a sign. I didn't have any message to say. My only message was, I just want everybody here to get home safe. You said that you showed up because you wanted your daughter yeah. to be safer than if you hadn't. But I think some people might hear that and think, but there were active police responses and you yourself got hit with less than lethal munitions and all these things. So help me understand why you were there for your daughter's yeah. safety if it was such a unsafe place to be. Yeah, well, we know when you're 16, you're full of um, questions and uh, passion and you're starting to figure out that, try to figure out what your role in the world is and they wanted to go. Um, and they wanted to see what was happening. And I thought, well, that's, that's good. You should, you should figure out what your response to this thing is going to be. And I knew that there were active police responses. And at the time that we started going, there were, um, you know, unmarked federal agents grabbing people and throwing them into minivans. Did I know that I think that everything would be safe if I was there? Of course not. Mm. Um, am I, are, are, are either of us disappointed that we went and, you know, they suffered the injuries they did? No, we do it all over again. Um, it was pretty important for me to be there, even though it was ultimately, you know, injurious. Um, but people are, and I, I took that, um, that role, you know, when my kid no longer wanted to go for obvious reasons, I realized that you know, would, would, would me being there help somebody's day, help somebody's night get a little bit better? And it, it always was. I, so I thought, well, here's this opportunity where I have a flexible job and, um, you know, pretty, pretty, I have a platform that I can use to, you know, bring more awareness to this issue. And it's not really affecting me very much psychologically. So I, I got to keep doing it. And that's kind of honestly why I think I'm running because, um, I know that I can do a good job. I know a lot of people have a unique perspective on things. Am I really, really excited to continue to get 
hate from people who don't like me or don't like the city, want to shit on the city, so they're going to shit on me. No, I'm not excited about that, but I'm going to do it anyway because it needs to get done. I think one of your, uh, one of your positions that's going to get attention is, and I wonder how the protests have influenced your politics. So I'm curious about one of your positions where you say adding policing is never the answer. And wonder if you can expand on that and help me understand where you'd see the line where a cop, where a traditional armed cop should show up uh, and where you think if we shouldn't add any policing ever, you know, what should police reform in Portland look like? Mm. Yeah, I think there, there is no one definition of what an armed police officer is. Is it somebody who has uh, a particular kind of training where a different officer doesn't? Is it an officer who lives in Portland or an officer who doesn't? Is it um, a, a new officer who has had very, very little education and training uh, and mentoring? Or is it somebody who's been on the force for 20 years and is way lower than their peers in their uh, use of force? Um, so I want to encourage, I want to create policies that push policing into the kinds of responses that reasonable people want when they call a police officer. Look, I've called police officers. I've called police officers numerous times, and I've been glad that they've showed up. Um, I've also been in situations where I'm like, I'm not going to call the cops here because I don't want that armed response to the situation. I've also, as a business owner, I have to call the police when I get a broken window in order so I can file an insurance claim. So why are we sending out you know, a $250,000 officer, you know, between their training and their equipment in a $150,000 vehicle to file an insurance claim. Yeah, there are services available in the city of Portland to not have to send an officer out. But every time I've gotten a broken window, an armed police officer has showed up and yet they complain about not having enough officers. They're kind of doing that mm. part wrong. Keep the armed officers for the actual times when violent crime is being committed or needs to be followed up with. And every other time, we don't need to send those people out. So and something like Portland Street Response is a fantastic mm. option there. So it sounds like you're saying the city should practice a similar type of thoughtful discretion that you do as a citizen in terms of when you call them with how they deploy them to some degree. For sure. But there also just needs to be more responsiveness. Um, you know, a friend of mine has a small business, and he, has, he had an incident over a... a a little period of time with machete guy. And you can imagine machete guy, guy with machete. Google it. Not good. Um, the, uh, you know, he, he has a bar. They're leftist bartenders. They didn't want to call the cops because they knew Portland police officers are really good at using force, oftentimes deadly, on people in mental crisis. This is a known issue. This is not a political point. Um, so... They didn't want to call the police because they thought, oh, this guy has a weapon. They never felt like he was going to kill him, but it was like, this can't happen. Like, I'm trying to run a business here. I can't have a machete guy with, you know, around my customers, right? They didn't want to call the police because they didn't, they feared for this guy's life, mm. um, whereas they didn't necessarily fear for their own lives. Um, they called private security, mm. um, echelon security service. They're private cops. Um, I don't like the concept of private cops, but I love 
solving problems. Uh, they did a fantastic job when they de-escalated this guy. They had to do it a few times. They de-escalated him, and it, it ultimately went away. The best part about it is that Echelon showed up in five minutes and cost the business owner 150 bucks. Sign me up for that every time I need a police officer to have a great solution come out of it for basically no money from a business person's perspective. 150 bucks is not a thing. Uh, and have a five-minute response time. Why can't we hold the Portland police to that same level of performance, same level of performance that we're holding uh, AMR to, the ambulance service? We're complaining about their response times. Why don't we have solutions to make sure that the police are actually responsive to our communities? That's what I'm here for. Not for, I'm not a cab. I think the police need to be responsive to the community, and they're not really responsive these days. You you answered something I was just going to follow up with, which is, are you a cab? Are you anti-police? Yeah, no. Um, I'm largely anti-police on the response that we've been getting out of them. Mm. There's a place for policing in, in America, for sure. Does it have uh, a horrible history? Yeah. Does it have, are, are there problems pretty much everywhere you look in it? Yeah. But we can't get rid of the police. Like, uh, you have to be able to call the police when machete guy is dealing with it or when you have an active situation, you want the police to show up. But things like qualif ending qualified immunity, um, trying to ratchet down the power of the Portland Police Association, the union here, so that they aren't always defending literally corrupt cops. Mm. We have cops who violate laws and keep their job because the PPA is too powerful. Those kinds of things that are really just common sense approaches to policing, I think. That's, that's what I'm here for. I also will point out that in my, on the website, I'm, I'm a not, I, I don't think we should do any defunding. Um, I think the defund movement was great to bring attention to the matter. I would like to see the, the money being spent differently. And one thing that I'm really excited about is getting more mental health support for police officers. Mm. More cops die of suicide than they do in the line of duty. It's one of the worst, the highest jobs in America for suicide. Domestic violence is very high. And sure, maybe you could say it attracts domestic violent, domestically violent people, or maybe their jobs are so messed up that their mental health suffers and domestic violence is one of the symptoms of that suffering mm. mental health. Mm. I don't know how we don't support mental health of police officers more than we, more than we do currently, which is to say not at all in American society overall. Yeah. 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 Those are, those are good points. I think, um, uh, talking, talking to cops and understanding, you know, where they're coming from is a very interesting exercise and maybe something that it would be really interesting if you were able to do that with all of your experience and, yeah. and, you know, opinions about, about policing and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, there are bastards on the yeah, police don't force. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. There's bastards everywhere you look. Yeah. I mean, well, in every like industry. We, just, just like I always say with, you know, people that ride bikes, I mean, people that are cops, right? It's not a, it's not a monolith. It, yeah, exactly. And there you are know. some fantastic officers on the force and there are some ones that need to go find a job somewhere else for sure. Yeah. Same way in it, cycling advocacy. It, there are people who are really focused on solving our actual problems. And then there are people who just hate cars for no reason. Yeah. We have sort of ways in the community of dealing with that. And I think I, what you're saying, I think is what most reasonable people would want is if there was someone that really doesn't belong in a certain job, there should be a lever, a function, a way to hasten that. Right. Yep. And I think you've correctly identified that there's this, you know, officer's union and also 
city hall politics and not willing right? to take on not the willing to yep. do that. Yep. So we're stuck with these very powerful, you know, public servants without yeah. a lot of accountability and it's it can be pretty scary yeah it's like we need to support some of the police a lot more than we are mm. and we need to take away support from some other types of policing a, a lot more than we do right 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 appreciate your thoughts on policing switching gears here though i have this quote that i want to share that i got from reddit and it's going to help us uh it's going to help us wind down the interview a little bit and it has to do with cider. So I thought I could get into the quote mm. by having you tell everybody what you brought over today. Oh, yeah. Oh. What are these amazing things we're drinking? Yeah, so I've got, um, you know, I, I was able to f finish up Reverend Nats with a lot of uh, fun and and so a bunch of new products that I made at the very end. I released six new ciders in the last six weeks. And th th these two that we're drinking are, are one or, or two of the... Uh, the last ones I made, they're both they're both non-alcoholic. So alcohol removed hard cider. I made a hard cider, and then I used this very expensive machine filter that literally just filters out the alcohol, uh, and we're left with all the flavor and none of the alcohol. So in this case, it's less than 0.5% alcohol. Wow. So I'm drinking them. Oh, this one's called Happy Hour because yeah. it's like watermelon and pineapple and like really fun, and you're drinking Date Night, which is another... Time it's amazing. That, they're really good, yeah. I mean, in perfect Revnat's hard cider fashion, I'm drinking something that I've literally never put in my mouth, probably, yeah. especially at the same time. This date night it has a pear, black lime, and quinine. Yeah, and, and a de-alcoholized hard cider base. You went yeah. out with the blaze of glory. I like a lot of creative stuff. And so just a you know, little, little pitch, happy hour. I have a bunch of cases of happy hour left. Oh, really? And I can't provide alcohol in exchange for a donation mm. in political worlds. That's against the rules. But I can provide a non-alcoholic drink. So one of the uh, gifts in exchange for a donation to my campaign is a four-pack of this happy hour. Wow. So you, I don't think you can get it in the stores anymore or whatever, but we've got it. Uh, I got some available. All right, folks, give it a sample, uh, and you'll understand why this Reddit user on a thread mm -hmm. this week about you announcing your candidacy, this person said, quote, his cider deliveries did more to get me through the pandemic than any government policy ever did. Ooh, should I just stick with that then? <laughs> that needs to be... Yeah, I don't know. You might want to work that on your I appreciate your website, that. Yeah. So. Reddit's usually pretty kind to me, and I appreciate that. Nice. Well, uh, Nat West, thanks for coming into the shed. I really appreciate you talking with us. Thank you for the questions, Jonathan. Always fun to be here. All right. Cheers. Cheers. And that will do it for another episode of In the Shed. Really appreciate all of your support. If you are not a paid subscriber of Bike Portland yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org slash support and find out how you can be a part of what we're doing here and pay a little bit in to keep it thriving and surviving. I also want to thank Brock Didis of Sprocket Podcast fame for our wonderful new theme music. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, we'll see you in the streets. <laughs>